you know, in terms of how it predicts churn, I think what it does is it tells us, we do look at how the buying process works. We do do the surveys and get input. We do establish the metrics around that. But I think more so we then try and say, right, okay, for this customer, how do we apply techniques to build trust? And some customers make it easier for us. Some customers make it a little bit harder. But in all cases, our, our job is still to build a trust with the customer, if right. that makes sense. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Chris Pennington. Chris is the Chief Customer Officer at Sugar CRM. And in our conversation today, we're talking about the customer experience and the challenges that many companies have in tracking, measuring, and quantifying the customer experience, which is kind of surprising as the customer experience is such a key indicator of impending churn among your users. So Chris and I dive into some of the key findings from customer experience research that Sugar CRM released earlier this year. And some interesting findings are one, that 55% of respondents admit to not being able to identify customers at risk of leaving. And 57% of the respondents in the research said that they struggle to track customer churn rates effectively. So something that's seemingly so straightforward to track is actually kind of complex. And over half of companies are struggling with it. So we're diving to all that and much, much more. But before we get to Chris, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And let's jump into it with Chris. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Andy. Delighted to be here. What a pleasure to have you here. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do. Yeah, look, uh, I suppose from my standpoint, uh, relevant for the podcast, I've been in the, the tech industry for the last 30 years or so. Um, I, for my sins, I started in the sales realm, but um, moved across <laughs> on the dark side. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, moved across more and more to the service delivery and customer side. So for the last 10 or 20 years, at least I've been in sort of senior um, management uh, roles in that realm. But really, my, my background is all around uh, the software uh, industry. So um, CRM and, and ERP and work with firms like PeopleSoft and Epicor and Microsoft. And, and I'm delighted now I'm the chief customer officer at Sugar. And uh, it certainly keeps me, keeps me out of trouble, I should say, Andy. <laughs> it keeps us off the streets, right? Uh, and I mean, as we were touching on before we started recording, is, is uh, yeah, you could play a game, have people locate where you're from based on your accent, and they would be completely wrong. Well, that's true. I can... Uh, any given day of the week, I can claim three different continents. So, um, but certainly Australia, I, I call home. Um, but I'm actually uh, here in the U.S. and loving living in the U.S. in Denver, Colorado, at the moment. That's uh, making the most of my time here. Yeah. So, what what brought you to the U.S.? Because yeah, you primarily you said you spent most of your childhood uh, in the U.K. Even though you're born in Australia, and then most of your professional career has been in Australia until just recently. That's right. It, look, it was fortuitous. You know, sometimes opportunities come along and you take them with both hands. And uh, I was uh, good friends with the uh, CEO of Sugar, and he we met um, coincidentally after sort of being apart for a few years. And he said, "Look, are you interested in helping me join uh, Sugar and run, you know, um, the customer side of things?" And I looked at my wife and my adult children had recently moved to college, and they thought that was a big move, the moving out of town and moving out of house. And we surprised them by saying, well, we're going to move to America. Bye. <laughs> so it was just a good timing all around, you know, from a family standpoint, from a work standpoint, 
Um, it was great to be able to have an opportunity to work again with Craig, our CEO. Um, so yeah, it, it's worked out very well. Well, but so important question is, is it hard being that far away from your kids though? Well, it's ironic because when I said to my, my wife, don't worry, you'll be able to go back whenever you like. And then of course the <laughs> pandemic right. hit and I wasn't able to really fulfill that promise. So yeah, look, it has been hard and there's no denying it. Right. Um, one of the things I would say though, it's, I mean, you referenced my early um, you know, uh, life and growing up in the UK, and we'd make phone calls once a year for ten or fifteen minutes on a phone right. call. And right. today's technology, I, you know, I talk to the kids every day of the week on Snapchat or, or uh, WhatsApp. It, you know, that definitely helps. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But it's it's still that thing. I, yeah, especially in the time like for a while there in Australia, you couldn't have gone even if you'd wanted to. I mean, so, it was shocking. We shouldn't go there, but it, yeah, it wasn't good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. Well, let me ask a question. So what, what is a chief customer officer responsible for? Yeah, I think I've got one of the best jobs out there. I mean, I'm ultimately responsible for the experiences that our customers have. And um, that can be pretty far ranging. So I, I obviously have some operational responsibilities, make sure we deliver the right support, the right services, mm-hmm. the training community, all the elements you would consider from an operational standpoint. But there's a more strategic element, which is to making sure that the customers get the experience they need. Uh, are they using our technology to the best advantage? Are they um, you know, helping their customers get their end result? So I get to talk very regularly to different customers of all manner of shapes and sizes and all walks of life. Um, and my conversations uh, are sometimes um, talking to customers that are doing wonderful things, but I'm also, it's it's a bell curve. There's always a customer that's not mm-hmm. quite so happy. Um, right. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, even when people are not happy, getting on the phone and talking, it's, it's a fantastic level. And more often than not, you can solve a problem if you know about it. And so even though that's, it's, it's a hard part of the job, no one ever wants to talk to, you know, everyone wants to have, um, you know, uh, happy customers all the time. Um, and for the life, I would say sugar customers very much are. We're very blessed. We have a very strong, loyal customer base. But I think one of the reasons why I think the chief customer officer role is so dynamic is that there's a, there's there's so much encompassing every day, and it's the heartbeat of of what we do. You know, our customers right. are our lifeblood. Yeah. I, so as chief customer officer then is – what are you measured on? What's your What's your most important metric when when you're being evaluated? Yeah, well, you're evaluated every day of the week. Believe you me. Right. <laughs> um, there's several things. Look, we have a mantra of um, fairly simple: build trust and generate customers for life. So there's, there's obviously some hard metrics as well, which is churn rates. Uh, you obviously you want to drive strong revenue. We have satisfaction uh, rates around uh, net promoter scores. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a series of uh, aspects that relate to how the business is performing, how the customers are engaged. Um, so there's a combination of those things. But if I take it to the more, I mean, there's obviously the hard measures, but if I take it more um, esoteric, it really is, you know, you measure on, you know, the next customer. If, if, if you can demonstrate a track record of happy, trusting relationships with customers, that helps you, helps the sales organization bring on new customers and i think to some degree that's also a a subliminal measure um Mm -hmm. you're as good as your customers say you are and uh so i judge myself very much on that Uh, what's our relationship like 
in the broader sense of our customers, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, I just wondered, I mean, <laughs> other than NPS, Net Promoter Score, I mean, do you have like a overall customer experience score that you guys look at? Yeah, we've, we've dabbled with that and we've mixed results, I'll be honest with you. So, I mean, our, the NPS score for us is very strong. So particularly we have a, a score that we rate um, through our support arrangements and it's it's in the 90s. It's unbelievably mm -hmm. strong. And it's, that's taken us a long time to get to that. When we started measuring sure. that, it, it was in the 30s and 40s. And, and each year that went by, we sort of moved up a you know, 10 points uh, and we've been able to maintain it. We have, and so we put a lot of effort into that NPS score, but in terms of overall effort score or uh, we have dabbled with different elements, um, but we don't have a unified score across the board on that regard. I think we probably measure more on um, uh, net retention, um, mm -hmm. you know, a measure of churn. Sure. Um, we also look obviously at uh, the, um, you know, if, if a customer is still, with us, the duration or tenure of customers, mm -hmm. and always look at the, the the revenue that customers are are bringing in continuously. So, if a customer is happy uh, and paying, it's not the only measure, but it is a good measure. But customers that are unhappy; don't tend to spend money with you. Um, <laughs> does that make sense? I know that's no, I don't want to be crass, but no, but it, no, I'm just laughing because it's it's yeah. I started my career working for a company called Burroughs, which was at the time the second largest computer company in the world. This was a while ago. And at the time, they were, had the CEO who's, <laughs> I swear to God, this is true. And you can look it up online and verify his, his customer support, customer service, customer success mantra, whatever you want to call it was that, yeah, you want to keep customers surly, but not rebellious. <laughs> and his, his, his theory was that the moderately dissatisfied customer was a great prospect to upsell right i i would i would put that slightly differently in the sense that <laughs> i'm not looking for the upsell all the time but you you want customers to talk to you so the ones which are slightly disgruntled will tell you and give you an opportunity to fix the problem yes so you know um and the problem isn't always a result of upsell but the the, the challenge is when they go quiet on and they don't talk to you and then leave you that's that's the dark Oh, yeah. not breaking, you know, um, that's not so great. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to get to that in a second. Cause you know, I want to go through some of the findings from your global customer survey you did earlier this year. Cause it sort of speaks to some of that. So, but a question I want to get to first was, is, uh, you know, what point do you in the customer's experience, do you actually start to measure it? And specifically, you know, are you measuring the customer's experience in their buying journey? Um, we have um, started on a process of measuring. Um, well, let me let me rephrase that. We send a series of surveys to check uh, on the process, and we certainly survey once a new customer is signed. So please tell us what your experience was of the sales process. We do that as a new customer survey. Mm -hmm. So we don't we don't so much survey during the sure. pre-sales process. Um, Although that, I have, capture what that experience was after the fact, which is, is fine, yeah. but it's the fact um, you're doing it is great. So how do you, again, is that something you try to quantify or how are you measuring yeah, that it, and feeding it, that back to sellers? It, it's, a, it's a survey. And we, one of the reasons we do that is to capture a benchmark. So what we want to do is we want to see how our customers experiences throughout their whole life cycle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we periodically issue surveys uh, every six months. We issue surveys based on when they've just joined, we've talked about, 
we issue surveys based on when they are um, uh, encountering a, a support incident or you know engaging with our, our, our business. Um, so we have a, a series of different touch points along the way to gauge, uh, I guess, the, the health of the relationship to right. some degree. Um, but we also track a, a health metric, you know, and that, that health metric is a little bit more subjective. So we have customer success managers that will engage and mm-hmm. talk to customers. And that's a lot more, what does the gut say? Is it, you know, is it a thumbs up, thumbs down? How, how is the uh, how is the relationship going? Because you, you can survey um, one person that's disgruntled one day, the customer account may well be happy, but you get somebody one day that's just annoyed and the survey just pings and says, ah, this is terrible. Right. Well, that's so not- in that gut feel, is there, you know, one person that's responsible for, for, for creating that metric is like, yeah, I think they're a six out of 10 or is it a collective thing? How does that get arrived at? Yeah, we, it, it, it tends to be the responsibility of the customer success manager, but they will take into range a, diff, a range of different factors. Right. You know, have there been a, a, a high spike in case volume? Um, you know, have they been, uh, when we engage, have they been, um, you know, responding to our uh, campaigns, um, you know, yeah. for our marketing campaigns? Uh, have they raised uh, points of escalation? Um, are there any ongoing, you know, uh, expansion opportunities where they're talking to us about driving things? So it's it's not just I'll put my finger in the air and say, oh yeah, I think they're pretty good today. <laughs> well, no, but they're they're using a combination of data and their gut feeling, if you will, their experience, their intuition, and so on to to arrive at that. I think, Andy, that you hit on something I think is very important, and it's something we'll talk more about. I'm sure about data and AI. You, it's very important to make sure you're applying some um, thought process to information that's being surfaced through data. Mm-hmm. And so I think even though it may be dismissed, um, you know, that having a, an appreciation or an understanding of what the gut is saying and interpreting it is, is I think, still a very valuable thing. You and I. Yes, of course. <laughs> you, 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 know, you know, when you walk into a restaurant or you enter a shop and you meet somebody and you can tell instantaneously a vibe when you engage with somebody different, you know, that's, that's mm-hmm. something that we as humans are very good at. What we, um, what we can sometimes do is, is be biased in, in that perception. Sure. And that's where I think the data helps level that out for us, you know? Um, but I think being able to interpret the data is important. Yes. No, I agree. I think that, that efforts to, as we see from time to time, and I think we're sort of heading into one period of this now is, people's efforts, whether it's investors, management to us, or disintermediate sellers or uh, yeah, success people or whatever, people that can render a judgment and substitute the judgment of AI completely, I think are making a mistake, right? Because yeah. Yeah, you're, you're missing something. But there's certainly people feel that it's a really attractive proposition to be able to do that. Um, and I think that the answer is never to replace people with technology, but to help People get better through technology, but that, I think you're right. That's me. Um, well, a question then too. I just want to ask. Getting back to this last point is is because I asked this question. I wonder with this company's lot is is yeah yeah you're tracking. You're doing your surveys. Buyers have gone through want their customers now after they've gone through their buying journey to get their their take on what their experience was dealing with your sellers. Have you established or seen any correlations between what that buying experience was and does it correlate at all to 
the probability of churn? Um, yes and no. Um, uh, there's, there's definitely a lot of correlations with churn and, and many factors around why churn occurs. Mm -hmm. And the buying process is a is a critical element. I, I talked before about you know one of the pillars of what my organization does is build trust and generate customers for life. Right. And trust is a trust is a very fickle thing. <laughs> um, but it can be, yeah. It starts in the buying process. Of course. So, yeah. and you get people to buy. People buy for different reasons, and. You know, we're in a situation right now with a couple of um, prospects, and one is you can see they're invested in the process and they really want to have a partnership, and they're, they're talking about trying to work out a, a long-term strategy, and that's that's a brilliant position to be in. We have another situation where somebody has pulled the contract out and said, "Right, how can I screw you mm -hmm. to the wall? Because mm -hmm. um, I just want to get the best deal I can." They'll mm -hmm. hit their KPIs, and you've got to think from those two starting points that sort of sets the benchmark for what experience is likely to come next and our job is obviously to recognize that all customers are you know we're very grateful for every customer we have and part of the reason why we do the survey and assess that is to make sure that irrespective of their buying decision we need to find a way to make that partnership work with that customer whatever their original motivation was so you know in terms of how it predicts churn i think what it does is it tells us we do look at how the buying process works we do do the surveys and get input. We do establish the metrics around that. Mm -hmm. But I think more so we then try and say, right, okay, for this customer, how do we apply techniques to build trust? And some customers make it easier for us. Some customers make it a little bit harder. Um, but in all cases, our, our job is still to build a trust with the customer. Does right. that make sense? Oh, yeah. So – from your perspective, is, is what are those critical elements of building trust? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was um, only given my all hands yesterday uh, to the team, and I've put up a new mantra. I've, I've repeated it many times, and it's consistent, repeatable, scalable. And it sounds so boring when I say, you know, you know, three words of that nature. But one of the things about um, Trust is the ability that, you know, when when you get an experience, you, you want to get what you expect and it needs to be consistent. If you're, you're inconsistent in the way in which you deliver, you can't do great service occasionally. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to deliver great service uh, uh, all the time. Um, we need to be able to repeat the process, um, obviously. Um, right. We don't want to be um, expensively reinventing the wheel every time. But we also want to make it sure it's scalable. So as we grow as our business, you know, we're, we're all about fueling growth for ourselves and our customers and making sure that they can um, profit in building their business. We need to be able to scale with them. So um, I would start with that premise that consistent, repeatable, scalable service delivery is a, is a, is a bedrock for you know, how you set a foundation for trust. Yeah, and I remember reading... Gosh, it wasn't that long ago, but I think it was a study that had been done by Oracle. Pretty sure it was Oracle. But I, the, the takeaway, and I'm a little fuzzy on it today, but I mean, just roughly the takeaway was, is that it only took like one bad customer service experience for a customer to begin considering alternatives. Oh, it's very true. You know, we talk yeah. about the fact that you, you build, trust is built in droplets, um, but a bucket full of trust can be lost in a 
you know, you kick the bucket over, you lose the trust, right? It, right. it doesn't take much to. Um, but I was also thinking about this. You know, we, we we talk a lot about trust, and we unpack that with our team, and how do we drive it? And you know, I I think the other elements I would put into that is time, empathy, and data. And in order for you to deliver consistent, repeatable, scalable service, mm-hmm. increasingly we're seeing people just assume it will happen quickly. So velocity mm-hmm. and time is a massive factor. Right. Um, I think empathy is um, – there's been a lot of talk about the contrast of empathy and sympathy. and But you know, increasingly we see – and I think one of the differentiators I'd say is sugar is that it's important not to forget the human factor. Right. You know, we're in a customer relationship management basis, and the relationship part is super important, and empathy goes a long way to drive that. So I think you need to be able to respond with velocity or in a time frame that is appropriate, and that's getting increasingly harder. Customers demand or expect instantaneous results. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to demonstrate empathy. You can't not be in a business, I think, of relationships without deeply understanding that. And the third point I mentioned there was data. Um, and I'll translate that to knowledge. We often use data as a substitute form. But if you're to build a relationship with a customer, you need to have some knowledge about what they're doing, what they're striving for, what's ha- impacting them. So, you know, there's no point in just showing up and being really fast and really empathetic. But if you're in a void of understanding that customer, then you yeah. can't build. Well, I agree. No, I actually in my latest book, I write about this specifically, which, and I phrase it a little differently is that unfortunately, and from a sales perspective, and I think it's true of success as well as people are satisfied knowing something, but not really understanding it. See, I think there's this gap between knowing the knowledge and the understanding. Yeah. No, right. I think you, because, yeah, no, great, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, think of it from you know, point of, let's say a discovery call is, is a seller can be pretty competent at, you know, going through the usual questions they ask and getting answers and so on. But then do they really understand the context of the answers and why the, the knowledge they have is important to the buyer in terms of the challenges they face and the outcomes they're trying to achieve? And that to me is, is and sort of an ever-present large gap that most sellers don't try to I, I think you're right. And there's a difference between going through a process of, you know, rote, as you say, just going through the motions uh, or investing, you have to invest. It's not easy. You have to invest time and energy to deeply listen, and you know, apply techniques to understand what the customer is really trying to say. Um, it's not. Yeah. It's not hard. It's not. Well, I think uh, it applies to empathy, though, as well. And this, I talk about this in the book as well, because I was influenced years ago. I read Paul Bloom's book called "Against Empathy," uh, <laughs> and yeah, he makes this case that that what we all understand as empathy, sort of this compassionate empathy, which is, you know, I know how you feel, right? <laughs> I know how you feel. It, it doesn't help us because just because we know how somebody feels doesn't mean we understand why they feel the way they do. And without that understanding of why they feel the way they do, we can't help them. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, suppose I, would, I would, yeah, I think the, the important operative word there is why. Yeah. And so he, he distinguishes between the, yeah, he used the term compassionate empathy and cognitive empathy. And we we don't train sellers to support people on this idea of cognitive empathy, which is really the only form that's not the only form, but it's the form that's most most useful to our buyers, our customers. Because then we go beyond just 
empathizing with how they feel, we actually understand why they feel the way they do. And that then gives us information to take action to solve the issues that's causing them pain or whatever. I, th- I think you're right. And I think there's a lot of empathy is obviously talked about quite a bit at the moment. And there's, there's a danger of thinking that you've got to be empathetic when there's a tragedy. And But it, empathy occurs in every aspect of what we do. Not It doesn't always have to be a, a deeply traumatic aspect, aspect right. to, to bring empathy to the forefront. Like you said, the motivation why somebody chooses to buy or not buy or negotiate or, um, you know, um, use the software or get upset by it or, or engage in they all have their roots in, you know, some, some, something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree with you. you know, I think it, uh, it's a very strong component. So Yeah. Well, and so we've been talking about churn and, and we've seen, I'm sure there's something you spent a lot of time thinking about, is we've seen, yeah, the great resignation of employees, but we also, you know, it's been written about the great customer resignation as well. Um, and you, Sugar, CRM, when your global survey uh, reported that you released earlier this year, said that 58% of companies reporting their rate of customer churn increased over the previous 12 months. So during, let's say, the 2021 calendar year, I mean, it's, I guess it doesn't really surprise me. I'm just wondering, uh, do you see this continuing in 2022? Um, predicting the future is very difficult. And I think if anything has taught us in the last couple of years, that's, um, you know, what, one thing we can expect the other is the unexpected. And, you know, I think it's, the survey result we did, we, we, we canvassed 1,600 organizations, and I think what was significant in that, you talk about 58% saying it was getting, churn was getting worse for them. Um, and that was on the backdrop of, you know, churn's always a problem from a customer standpoint. I think globally, you know, the, you know there's some statistics, sure. if you believe them, up to a third of customers are churning. And so I think what's happened is, is it, to answer your question, is it going to get worse? I think that we certainly are in an era uh, of un- entering in a period of uncertainty. We've come out of the pandemic. We've taken a, a sigh of relief that, whew, that's behind us. And, of Sorry. course, we're, we're immediately into, um, well, hang on, what about, you know, inflation and economic right. recessions and political instability? And there's a, there's a, you know, and I think even the great resignation, we've already seen that turn on its head that, you know, there's been the great reshuffle. There's been people um, trying to rethink you know, how they uh, engage their workforce or, you know, they've got Oracle as an example, you know, letting some people go. And you well, know, I think th- it's, it's the great regret too, if you read <laughs> your articles, that, you know, high, high fraction of those people that left jobs in the great resignation, I forget what the exact percentage was, but a substantial fraction of them said, yeah, I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think, so I think what I would characterize it is, and I think what, you know, we've been talking to our, our team internally, it's, it's important that we plan for the road ahead. We don't right. quite know what the road is going to be. Will it be straight? Will it be ups and downs? Will it be twists and turns? But it's really important that we plan for that. If anything the last two years has taught us is that we need to be resilient in the face of that. And I think customer churn has been on the increase uh, in the last 12 months. Um, and I think that for some organizations, it will continue to be a problem but I equally think there are mechanisms by which organizations can help themselves try and reduce that churn for customers, if that makes sense. So sure. it's not all doom and gloom uh, would be my outlook. But I think that if you if you approach it passively, you could be in for a world of pain as customers. Um, you know, if, you, if you're not if you're not engaging correctly with the customers, 
I think the the customer churn for those organizations will will continue. Yeah, well, I agree 100. percent But I think part of the issue that obviously the, the great resignation must have caused. I was going to say churned up, but didn't want to be too redundant on that. Is yeah, it's hard to provide great service if you have sort of this discontinuity of of uh, among your service team, right? If people are leaving and you're having to replace people on the fly, or you can't find good people to find the slots, um, yeah, it makes that challenge really hard. Look, it really does. And you know, we I'll go back to the comment of relationships and partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got a high turnover in your staff. And they, uh, in turn, that will have a knock-on effect to how you engage and service with your customers. Um, you go, it, it does um, impact the trust. You know, trust is a multi-layered uh, element with customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago, you only need one bad experience for it to trigger the thought, hmm, maybe I should look elsewhere. Um, and having a, you know, there's certainly value in having fresh faces being brought into an organization and a degree of turnover in your workforce to some degree is a healthy element. We, we know that. Where, where there's a tipping point is if the, the staff levels in turn turn to a point where it is unhealthy and it has a knock-on effect on your customers. Um, I would suggest that at this standpoint, you know, the great resignation um, is to some degree, we're entering a different phase where we have had a change in stability in the workforce, mm-hmm. but there are other factors impacting why customers might be looking to 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 churn out. And I think one of the things we can definitely do to help existing employees or certainly new employees, there are systems places. You know, we're obviously I work for a CRM vendor. You'd expect me to say there's, there's value in having technology that assist right. or augments your staff to make sure you're delivering superior customer experiences. I mean, that's one one thing I think we'll drill into is how do you stem that? But it really is a challenge that if you're not thinking about it, um, I think it will come up and bite you unexpectedly. That, that, you know, you have to think about your staff retention. You have to think about your staff well-being. Mm-hmm. You have to think about your staff development uh, and contingency plans, you know, if people do resign. But you have to apply that. That's not the only variable, I think, in – it's, it's a major variable, but it's it's part of a fabric that okay. So what am I doing about customer retention? How am I thinking about churn? So my I suppose what I'm trying to say, Andy, is if if you're thinking about it, you're halfway there to be able to combat what inevitably will be we've seen an increase in customer churn. If you're not right. thinking about it, you're leaving yourself wide open. So. Take us through what you do in terms of how you're looking at this. Because one of the problems, and I suspect maybe it's more pronounced, you know, sort of in the small, small business, mid-market type type arena, which you guys play a lot in, is is certainly in the software world is the the change cost is pretty low, right? I mean, compared to you know swapping yeah. out swapping out thousands of uh, you know physical things that you might have to have your, you know, some selling hardware or something, but a software, it, it's, yeah, you know, for the customers, I think a lot of them sort of look at as, well, oh, gosh, the barriers to change are pretty low. And if, gosh, they just pissed me off this one time. Yeah. We're going to start looking. Yeah. I think look, um, there's a perception and there's a reality. Um, and I think, um, you know, there's, there's an expression that the grass is greener on the other side. Now, there's, I won't repeat it on air, but there's a reason why the grass is greener sometimes. Um, on the, <laughs> um, 
I think one of the challenges there is expectation management um, on both sides. And so look at it as a real, it's a real um, threat to some degree, particularly in our industry. If, mm-hmm. if you've got a customer that is flighty, that can change and is not thinking seriously about the disruptions of their business, they can inevitably make decisions which they, I would say they think is just, oh, I'm just going to swap vendors out. Right. But what we're probably striving, trying to do is make sure that from our customer standpoint, those customers that are getting real value from a CRM solution where it's baked into their processes, again, it's there's a lot more to success and fueling growth than simply having um, you know, some software you swap in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think certainly from our standpoint, we, we spend a long time, you know, CRM uh, solutions are uh, historically, I think, in the industry, love them or hate them. You know, they're, they're, they're a necessary um, component. Um, they're a frustrating element for some people. What we've tried really hard to do is try and, um, I suppose, automate the mundane. We, we, we have a philosophy that, you know, you should be able to get more out of the CRM solution that you, than you put into it. And what we try and do is at every step of the, the process, demonstrate to our customers the value in staying with us and using the platform. We, we want the platform to do the work for them. And if we do that, we're trying to all the time to, to encourage them to see that there's there's more to it than just, oh, I'll just, you know, every three years switch to a different vendor. If, if you're switching every three years, then the, the problem isn't the vendor. <laughs> well, didn't I see in in your data somewhere, though, that I thought it was on, in your data that, that companies – Companies change, or thirty percent of companies are churning FCR systems are churning each year, or something like that. Yeah, so um, um, across the board, but it's not necessarily just our uh, industry. But you know, our, our when we speak to um, the sellers and marketers, they're seeing churn of their customers up to thirty percent in certain markets, and you know, it is it is a reality that as customers do churn out. And let's take our example of the software industry and CRM solutions. There are a number of players in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. It is a competitive world. Um, there's there's always somebody leapfrogging with a bit of technology that's you know um, someone's got the front spot and then somebody else will leapfrog. And there's there's always a reason you can point to as to oh I'm going to get the new shiny toy. But I think what I would say underlying that is when you switch out yourself, we need to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Um, and that's often hard, you know. When we, when we, one, one of the things our analysis uh, unearthed was the fact that, um, and I'll just uh, read from this to get it right: fifty-one percent of the organisations don't really understand why their customers are churning, and and even more than that, they're unable to identify customers that are going to churn. Well, if you don't know why your customers are churning, yeah. um, you know, you're, you're you're contributing. I would say you're to some degree your customers leaving. If that makes sense. Oh yeah. Well, no. I mean, when I looked through the data that was in your report, and yeah, there was that data point, which I think was fifty-five percent in your your report admit to not being able to identify customers at risk of leaving. Seventy-one um, percent said customers are leaving due to poor customer service. Seventy-three percent. Yeah. Da da da. And you sort of look at that, and I think it was another data point. Fifty-seven. Fifty-seven percent said they struggled to uh, track churn effectively. Yeah. But when I, when I look all those data points, it's like, to me, there's like a common, a commonality there, which is 
they're not doing a good job talking to their customers. Either they're not talking to their customers. Yeah, we, we did we did um, some other research amongst our own customer base, and yeah. um, it, it, again, churn is one of those odd things. It become when a customer churns, it, it it comes from an emotional point nine times out of ten, rather sure. than a rational one, right? Sure. And um, you know, in in the survey that we conducted, uh, the lack of communication or, uh, was deemed to be a, a high contributing factor for customers right. churning, but you can distill it down. Um, you know, there's good research to suggest that it's a perception of the customer that you don't care about them, which right. is why they ultimately churn. And communication is a big part of that. If you're not communicating effectively, or even if you are sending out email blasts and it's it's, it's going past the customer, if you're not getting your message mm-hmm. across, um, you may think you're engaging in all the things that relate to helping satisfy your customer but if the customer's perception is that you don't care about them um that's the we, we you know we that's the biggest determinant of why customers ultimately uh you know look elsewhere yeah, uh, and, and that, that right so yeah. say, that's, to me that's like they're saying the trust has evaporated at that point that uh, is true you know and, and look trust trust evaporates for a number of reasons both um, directly, you know, you've done something stupid or negligent or you know foolish, and you know that happens from time to time. We're all human, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Um, but trust can also evaporate um, subliminally. You know, you're you think you're doing the right things, you but you you you're just on a different pitch. You're talking at a different level to your customer. Then you're not. I'll go back to the word empathy. You're not understanding mm-hmm. what it is that's important to the customer. So. You can have a megaphone saying all the wonderful things about, you know, what you're doing. But if it's not hitting the mark with the customer, um, that's the really tricky and hard part. You know, sales and marketing um, doesn't stop once you've secured a customer. You know, from my standpoint, there's a, there's, yeah. It, yeah, it, it's the ongoing dialogue you have with customers, particularly in a SaaS-based sector as we are, you know, that securing a customer is one aspect, maintaining and growing the customer is another yeah, oh, as I said, the, the the buying journey, the the sales effort. Yeah, you know, if you have a customer for three years, even if you had a six month sales cycle, you're still <laughs> they're with you six times longer as a customer than they were during the buying process. I mean, it's yeah, the the pre sales, uh, hopefully a fraction of the duration of your your relationship with your customers. Yeah, I think yeah. that to me, one of the real deterrence things that de- degrades trust is, and I write about this in my book, I have a little acronym for how you build trust. I call it MICE, M-I-C-E, is motivations, integrity, competence, or credibility, and execution. And these are the four pillars of trust. And integrity, meaning do your actions align with your words? And if you want to have perception of trust evaporate quickly with the buyer, have that happen, right? Where you promise something uh, in writing, let's say, or in person, and your actions say you believe differently. No, it's, it's true, and uh, integrity is a, a fundamental. You know, it, it's crucial to any good business. And we talk about personal integrity, but I also talk about the concept of corporate integrity. Yes, and you want to make sure that you know what, the ultimate thing with customers. You want to make sure when you're not in the room that your customer can still espouse the same messaging that you would deliver. Mm-hmm. And if, if you can achieve that, then you've got, or I say it's corporate integrity, then the messages 
cut through and sustained way. Well, yeah, and then you've you have that consistency. It's really important. Yeah, and then yeah. then you're in a good position. Not totally. Yeah. Um, well, good. Well, Chris, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. It, uh, it's been delightful. Yeah, I'm glad we got this chance to do it. So, if people want to connect with you or learn more about Sugar CRM, which I guess they don't know, open source CRM system, um, how can they do that? Yeah, a number of ways. You can always find me on LinkedIn, very, very readily accessible. Uh, obviously, go to our website, www.sugarcrm.com. Um, the other thing I would encourage customers and partners and uh, prospects or anybody listening who's interested, we have a thriving online community, uh, Sugar Club. Um, people can Google that. And, uh, yeah, I would, I would welcome any dialogue um, uh, as part of that process. Excellent. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guest, Chris Pennington, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.